Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Seated. Good morning. It's my privilege to introduce to you our guest preacher this morning. But before I do, I want to commend again the work of the men from both of our churches that organized and pulled off our men's retreat this weekend was really wonderful. Thank you, men, for your work. Very good retreat, good time together. And part of what made it special, no small part of that, was the gift that God gave us in Pastor Vander Gallian. 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 Got it. Um, He is a wonderful brother, a gifted teacher. Uh, Pastor Vander Gallian is the pastor of Pine Grove Community Church, a wonderful church, a strong church in Rhinelander, Wisconsin. He's been the pastor there for eight years. He is married uh, to his wife, Mandy, and they together have eight children. And two of his sons are with him, Cooper and Daniel. Say hi. It's too bad you're so ugly. Jeremy has three grandchildren, which is a wonderful gift. He's a member of Evangel Presbytery. He became a member of our presbytery about a year ago, um, and he has strengthened us uh, even up to that point by himself attending conferences here over many years and bringing men with him from his church to, to join in with that uh, time of fellowship and teaching with us. And uh, Jeremy... First, I first, we first laid eyes on each other at a My Soul Among Lions concert in Wisconsin many years ago, and came in the, in the back, this bald man with this line of children, and, they, and then we got to know each other after the concert. It was very sweet. And I think it was the music that he first found, and that led him to other things uh, that uh, we have, uh, that Pastor Tim, Pastor Tim's ministry of writing, and then also the conferences, and then through the conference, Pastor Nip who taught a couple of years ago, and uh, they've connected as pastors over some counseling issues, and Josh has been helpful to him. And so now this is an opportunity for all of us to get to know him better together and to receive of his gifts. So Pastor Vander Gallian, come and bless us today, brother. Well, good morning. It is very good to be here with you all. I can say the help I have received from both of your churches uh, has uh, been incredible, and whatever help I am to you here this morning is just a little, little, little uh, bit of repayment for all of the time and care that I have seen given to me here. And, And my family and our church, we have been so helped by you. And so thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, As he said, my name is Jeremy Vandergallion. I can say it much easier than anybody else who has attempted so far. I am not from Bloomington Bible Church nor Trinity Reformed Church. Uh, And so it it was astounding to me that I was asked to preach at this service. Um, This is something of a momentous occasion, this planning over all of these years. And so... I count it a great privilege to do this. 
We are going to be looking at the letter of Galatians. I'm going to read just one verse, chapter 5, verse 1. At our church, we've been preaching through Galatians for some time, and so I have been in it. It has been in me. It has been in our church, and it has been very helpful to us. The reason it's been so helpful is we bear on our consciences a constant awareness of our sin before our holy God. And we don't have to (laughs) because of Christ. And so we began to preach through it uh, because we wanted as a church to again remind ourselves to have a bit of a reformation, if we might, remembering the great freedom that Christ has purchased us in our minds, in our consciences before God. And so it's been very helpful. Uh, Second, I wanted to preach out of this book uh, in order to remind us, remind myself, remind our church of the recovery from the Reformation to this day of the work in the church of the pastors. And to look at Paul's example, not just his doctrine of the freedom we have in Christ, but of his example of what pastoring looks like because that had been lost prior to Luther's nailing of the 95 Thesis in 1517, October 31st. So that's what I want to do for you this morning. I want to first remind us, proclaim to us the great freedom that you and I have before God the Father in our consciences and the joy and delight and happiness that comes from it, which you've been experiencing here this morning already as you've been singing and hearing this word, these words read to you. Isn't it a delight to come before God and sing to him as if there's nothing at all between you and him in your mind? That's uh, a taste of this great freedom. But then I also want to call you to have the faith to be pastored and to be pastored like Paul is pastoring here in this letter. And then if we have time I want to call you to remind each other. Now, those of you men who have been at the conference, and again, let me reiterate, what a delight. This was a lot of fun the last uh, day or so. And so my thanks as well to those of you who put it together. Uh, you know, you've been there. I think there's about 100 of you. From what I understand, there's five or 600 people here. So you 100 have heard this before. But I, I know that in uh, the last 12 14, 16 hours, you've forgotten it. And so I hope this is helpful to you to remember these things. So let me read Galatians 5, 1, pray, and then we will get into it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's ask God's help. Heavenly Father, you are holy and our hearts dread being found in our sin under your judgment. And so please come now by your spirit and pronounce to us within us the goodness of the work of your son in freeing us, that we might praise you with our whole hearts, that we would have confidence that you will not forsake us, and that we would be able to live in this world, in our minds, in the freedom which you've given us, and that we might be holy. And so, God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So the word freedom here, for freedom Christ has set us free, is the main thing in this letter. And it is a wonderful thing. We know, being Americans, that we hold this freedom precious, even if we'd rather um, have comfort rather than freedom. We love it. We love the freedom that we have. But the freedom that we have in Christ is far, far, far greater. In fact, you can lose all political, all civil freedom and still have this freedom in Christ and be as free as you ever could be. Amen? And so quit complaining so much, huh? <laughs> Enjoy what Christ has done. Now, you know, uh, the Reformation began, is marked by the beginning of Luther's posting of the 95 Thesis. And Luther, if you know his story, he lived in his conscience as an absolute slave to fear before God. He became a monk, hoping that his monkish ways would free him from that, and it only made it worse. And it wasn't until he was lecturing through the letter of Galatians in the years leading up to his posting the 95 Thesis that this profound freedom came to him and got him and the world in a mess of trouble. And so don't think as we consider this freedom that it will make your life easy. It often will not. Paul has to say here, stand firm in it because for whatever reason, people, when they see that you have this freedom, will want to take it from you and return you to the misery that they live in. Have you ever been around people like that? Where you have this lightness about you, this joy about you, and people who don't have it, rather than coming to you and saying, where did you get that from? They'd rather just bring you down into the muck with them. That's what's happening in this letter. And so it has to be fought for. And that's what the Reformation was doing. It was fighting to return to God's people, his beloved children, the freedom that Christ had purchased from them. Now, sometimes theologians use, they use big words to describe the formal cause of the Reformation and the material cause of the Reformation. You've heard those words before? It, it, it might sound a bit confusing, but by formal cause, we just mean what gave the Reformation its form? What gave its shape? What was the structure that the Reformation was built upon? And it's scripture. And so as Paul is preaching this gospel of freedom, he reminds the Galatians in the first two chapters that this gospel that gives you limitless freedom to come before God as if you're his own son came from God. It doesn't come from man. So, Verse 11 of chapter 1, I'd have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, if you're going to recover this freedom, if you're going to stand in this freedom, if you're going to enjoy it, if you're going to help others enjoy it, you first have to give yourself to the truth that God's word is from God. It isn't a creation of man. And you're going to have to live your life as if that's so. And not let other things bind your conscience like the Word of God does. And how quick we are to do that. How quick we are to give ourselves to lesser things and God's Word as if it is almost nothing. You can go hours and hours and hours without a consideration of the Word of God. You can go in your conversations with people, even on the Sabbath, without anything t scriptural. 
as if there are things much more important. You ever feel that in your conversations with people that you're just ashamed to talk about God's word and to talk about Christ? Why are we like that? Well, the first doctrine that we continue to have to remind ourselves is the doctrine that Scripture is from God. And that it is the structure that gave the strength of the Reformation that is carried forward to this day. And if we as churches, we as Christians, will not live as if that's so, we too will return to slavery like they were in their day. And so in our day of political turmoil, our day where we are very concerned about the direction of our nation, of its immorality, of its slaughter of unborn children, of its neglect of the elderly and the infirm. We're concerned about our elite class just fattening themselves while us as people are left to neglect. You can get so into that that it's as if that matters far greater than God's word. And so don't do that. So as I exhorted the men over the last two days, you have to, as a Christian, have the faith to nourish yourself constantly on the word of God. You have to attend your churches and under the preaching of your pastors and listen to them as if you are receiving the word of God from God himself. This is one of the things that the reformers were not ashamed to proclaim. That in the pulpit, though a fallible man is preaching, so long as he is preaching God's word, you are hearing from God himself. And that's true here even this morning. And so give your heart to the word of God. Now Luther explains here that this doctrine of the gospel that frees us that's the material that was put on the bones of Scripture. That, that's the material that uh, gave flesh to the Reformation. That's the heart of the Reformation. Luther says that this liberty by Christ has made us free, not from an earthly bondage, not from a Babylonian captivity, not from the tyranny of the Turks, but from God's everlasting wrath. And then Luther asks, and where is this done? That is, what is the location that that freedom is experienced from the wrath of God? He says this, in the conscience. For Christ has set us free, not civilly, not carnally, but divinely. That is to say, we are made free and that our conscience is now free and quiet, not fearing the wrath to come. That's the freedom here. Now, this past weekend, I led the men to a few places in Scripture that have been particularly helpful to me in understanding this. And so let's turn there now. Let's look at the book of Romans, chapter 7. This should be somewhat familiar to you in that at the end of it, beginning, let's say, in verse 16, Paul is lamenting and yet rejoicing that there is this war within him. This war by the new desires implanted in him by the Holy Spirit 
to do what is pleasing to God and to do what is helpful to the saints. And yet he has this flesh, a desire to do that which is displeasing to God and unhelpful to people. He calls it laws, completing laws. Verse 22, he delights in the law of God and in his, his inner being. But he sees in his members another law, waging war, listen to this, against the law of my mind. He's telling you where the battleground is and where the freedom that Christ has purchased for him is. It's in his mind. Do you know that you have complete freedom in your mind from all of your sin before God? Did you know that? And so this law of his mind is the law of the gospel that Christ has freed us from guilt of sin, shame of sin, regret of sin. So again, you may even right now be going back to things that you have previously said or done or not said or not done. And in Christ, you don't have to. You're free from that. You're absolutely 100% free. Not in of yourself. Not because you've done enough good deeds to undo the bad. But simply because of Christ. We'll look at the specifics of that in a moment. But just know the battle is here. Now turn to Hebrews, if you would. In the letter, or in this book of Hebrews, in uh, chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, he's going back again to remind us as Christians that all of the old covenant law was just a foreshadowing of the real to come. And now that the real in Christ has come, we no longer have to do the shadows. He's talking here specifically about the sacrifices, that the reason they have to be continually offered is because they themselves don't actually give you the freedom in your conscience that Christ would one day give. But now that Christ has come, we don't have to do it. But look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? That is, if an animal sacrifice actually cleansed your conscience, they wouldn't have to be offered anymore. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So the reason they had to continually offer animal sacrifices is because sinners were still terrified at the wrath of God. It was reminding them of their guilt and sin and pointing them forward to the one who would actually fully do what? Provide them with this freedom where they no longer have to have any consciousness of their sins. Isn't that remarkable? In Christ, it's as if we don't have to have any consciousness of our sins. Now this doesn't mean that we as Christians make believe that we've never sinned. You ever do that? Husbands, has your wife ever said something and then she's acted like she's never said it? I'm tempted right now to apply that same thing to men, but we'll just let the women deal with that one, huh? But you know it's true both directions. Your kids do this. 
That's not what he's saying here. He's saying that though it is true that you are a sinner, though it is true that you have transgressed against the holy God, though it is true that you in of yourself deserve are a right recipient of the eternal wrath of God. And though if you were left to yourself, you would be terrified in your mind, in your conscience of that day. That's all true. Christ's sacrifice on the cross where he paid the penalty for your sin now cleanses you in your conscience of any fear of the wrath of God to come. And in Galatians, we see in chapter 3, verse 13, how that happened. So remind yourself of this. This is why we have to know these things. Because you have to battle to believe that you have complete freedom of conscience, but you have to battle by believing that what Jesus did has been done and it is finished and it is sufficient, and so you're free. So look at that. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The curse of the law is the wrath of God against your sin. We said to Adam and Eve, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. That is the curse. And if you're here, Without Christ, that curse does rest upon you. You should not have any assurance in your mind of anything but a fearful expectation of judgment. Children, do you know that? Do you understand that, kids? You know that when you lie to your daddy or mommy, or when your sibling takes a toy and you smack him or her, that you are earning for yourself, the wrath of God. Now that's terrifying, isn't it? One of the things that happened at Halloween is they dressed up in masks because Christians are free from that and they wanted to have a little fun at demons' expenses. But children, without Christ, you are under the wrath of God. This is why your mom and dad lovingly bring you to church so that you can hear these things. This is why they discipline you, that you might feel the sting of your sin. This is why they oppose you in your wrongdoing that you get so tired of and right back to them. Don't do that. They love you. Yes, they make mistakes and talk about it too often or too forcefully and forget that they were once a child and so on and so forth. So what? Your parents aren't perfect, but they do love you enough that they don't want to see you miserable apart from Christ for the rest of this life and the life to come. And so kids, what's the, kids, what do you have to do to have this freedom? What do you have to do to have this enjoyment? Do you know? Kids, does anybody know? I've listened to your sermons before and I've heard your kids talk. (laughs) I can wait. What do you need to do, kids? Well, I guess I'm going to have to say it. 
You just simply need to trust in Christ. And that's it. In all of your lying, in all of your manipulations, in all of your stealing, in all of your anger at your siblings, it's forgiven because Christ died in your place for it. And so you have complete freedom. So the freedom is from the wrath of God in our conscience. This is what we talk about as the doctrine of propitiation. That's a big word, isn't it? It means that God is now propitious towards us, favorably inclined, having accepted us because Christ died in our place, taking the wrath of God so we no longer bear it. And that's what you believe in your conscience. You're free from that. You're as free as the Son of God himself is to come before the Father because you come before the Father in the Son and God himself. So do you believe this? Do you know this? Do you experience it? It is the greatest privilege of a Christian to come before God in complete and utter freedom without fear, without dread, without having to explain away everything, but just come. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is to reassure us of this, that we are free to come before God the Father at the table as his beloved children. And you know that in prior Reformation times in the Roman Catholic Church, the saints were not allowed to partake. And they weren't even allowed often to view it. It was happening behind something, behind a veil. And that one of the things the Reformers did is they not only brought it to the people, that they would make sure that there was nothing between the table and the people. They'd stand behind it as a visual reminder that they are free in Christ to come and eat at the Father's table. Nothing between them, no priest, no tricks they have to do, no rituals, no magic words. You just come without any thought in your brain. Though though you know you're unworthy and it makes you gladder, but not the kind of worthlessness that you feel like, I got to sneak into this thing. I got to do a backdoor kind of thing. I, I don't want God the Father to see me. But I, but I want it, but if he sees me, he'll know. You don't have that anymore. You don't have any sense of that at all. We are that free. We are that free. So why is it so hard to believe that? Why is it so hard for you to um, not be so dragged down in your conscience over that past sin? Well, part of it is your pride. Do you really think that the death of God's Son isn't sufficient for that one sin? Seriously? Do you really believe that? That God not only planned this eternal salvation, but accomplished it by the destruction of his own son, and you think that that's not enough for what you did 20 years ago. Really? Isn't that something, how proud we can be? It's, it's wicked that you don't come to God the Father and thank him for your freedom. You feel like he wants you to continue to 
be dragged down by what you did like as if Christ didn't do anything. It's really awful. Now, it could be that you had overbearing parents or coaches who belittered you or all that, blah, 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 psychobabble. That's true, maybe. I don't know. But who cares? You're free in Christ. And when those sins come to mind, and when those past regrets come to mind, what Luther said is agree with it. That's true. But you have Christ. So it's as if it's not true. And so partly you say, bring it on. (laughs) Remind me some more. It's just more reason for me to flee to Jesus. That's what we learn to do, brothers and sisters. Now, that freedom that we have in our conscience is very helpful when we're in suffering. It's very helpful. Because you know that sometimes in your suffering, you begin to think things like, what is God trying to teach me? What, what have I done? Because you just want to figure out, if you can figure out what you've done or what God is trying to de- teach you, then he'll stop harming you. That's, that's well, stinking thinking. Right? That, that's not true. Of course God is going to teach you through your suffering, but it isn't as if he's keeping his heavy hand on you until you figure it out. He's not that kind of a God. I mean, he's revealed everything. He's not hiding. This question of your freedom in your conscience while you're in suffering is that which causes you to endure because you begin to remember things in this gospel as if God who didn't spare his only son, what else won't he graciously give uh, me along with him? That, that's what you want to bring home to yourself in your suffering. That's particularly what you want to remind people of as they're suffering. Help them to believe again that God is not so angry with them that he's just crushing them down. It's not true. God is not that, he's not angry with us in that sense anymore. Now, of course, he does hate our sin, but he hates it as a father, hates the sins of his children. And of course, he does discipline our sin. And there are some times where it is a matter of figuring out, or uh, we typically don't have to figure it out. We know. (laughs) You know. It is a matter of repentance. But even then, God speaks so sweetly to our conscience, reminding us of the forgiveness we have in Christ, that we might come to him again. That's the whole point of it. And you are reminded in your suffering that it is for good. To suffer apart from Christ, there's nothing good in it at all. There's only misery to be followed by the misery of eternal destruction. Where in Christ, the misery of this world causes you to long for Christ. And so it is through much tribulation and suffering that you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. It is not strange that you suffer. It is a good gift of God. But provided you, in your suffering, remind yourself, do the hard work of standing firm in the freedom you have in Christ. So let me just make this as clear as I can make it. In your conscience, in your mind, you can approach God the Father like your children are free to approach you. You know that? 
just that freely, that happily. And the father will never be annoyed. Right, dads and moms? He'll never be annoyed. And I love that children, even when the parents are annoyed, keep coming. It's such a good lesson for you. We keep coming freely, happily, gladly, gratefully. We just keep coming simply without anything to offer him, without any reminders, without giving him your resume. You don't have to bring any of that. You can just leave everything and just come to him. So that's the freedom we have in Christ. But in chapter 5, verse 1, it does say that you'll have to stand firm in it. You will have to fight. You have to fight for each other. You have to pray that for each other. You'll have to come in faith to the sacraments. You will have to take in Scripture regularly. You will have to do the hard work of faith of telling your conscience to be quiet, to take yourself in hand and bring your mind to the truth of Scripture of Christ. You will have to do that hard work. Pastors, you have to do that hard work for yourselves or you will not be as helpful to your sheep. You will have to forgive the sheep for the sins they commit against you very quickly and very simply because they have the same freedom you have in Christ. And you will have to look over them, look past them, and care for them because that's what God the Father does for you very quickly. So let's talk about the shepherds. The freedom of, in Christ is the first Reformation reality. It is the meat. And God has appointed us shepherds to make sure that we don't stray from it. One of the most delightful books to come out of the Reformation time is Pilgrim's Progress. And you know that all along the way, Christian is constantly tempted to disbelieve this gospel and go astray. And when he disbelieves the gospel, he struggles to believe that he is welcome to come back And time after time after time, God appoints him companions along the way to to, to converse with him and remind him of this precious gift of freedom. And if you know Baxter's life, he constantly brings these people in, whether it's uh, the evangelist at the beginning, uh, particular people in the interpreter's house or others, and Baxter is using uh, his own pastor to base those characters upon. He's saying again and again and again that you need shepherds. And do you remember what he pictures God's church as? Do you remember? That beautiful, glorious castle. I can't remember what he actually calls it. Do you guys remember? Anybody remember? Our elder is teaching a class on it right now, and he just covered it, and I cannot remember it. Well, he forgets a lot that I say, so or even... Um, hmm. What he's saying is our faithlessness tempts to view our shepherds in the church as something that is anything but glorious. It's a drudgery. It's not that helpful. The shepherds aren't what I need them to be. 
So many times you as sheep can think that. You think about what you think you need from your shepherds and you hold up those expectations and when they don't meet them, you then build within yourself a uh, list of reasons why you don't need them. That isn't true. Now, in Luther's day or in the Reformation day, it was true that the shepherds were fattening themselves at the expense of the sheep. That was true. They were often absent from their own churches. They didn't feed them well on God's word. They never gave them the glorious freedom of the gospel but kept their minds in constant fear over their need to do this or that penance or pay this or that indulgence. They were only keeping the sheep in terror because you can manipulate people who are fearful and get rich off of them very easily. And so as the reformers went back to Scripture, they not only recovered the doctrine of freedom that we have in Christ, they recovered the doctrine of pastoring God's people. And Paul's model in Galatians is one of those. So let me just quickly go give you a few reminders of what you should be looking to your shepherds for and you as shepherds. Now by shepherds here, I do mean pastors and elders and deacons. But of course, there are other godly men and women in the church that you'll be looking to for help. And that you hopefully can, even if you don't hold the title of an office, can look at these things and so be helpful to others. The first is Paul tenderly cares for these people. In chapter 4, 12 to 20, you see this tenderness, this intimacy. He is lamenting, starting in verse 11, that he's fearful that the labor that he's labored over them is vain. Verse 12, he's entreating them to return to him. Verses 13 and 14, he's reminding them of their care for him during some illness that he had and how they treated him as an angel of God, as Christ himself. They didn't scorn or despise them. This is very applicable to us right now, isn't it? But then in verse 15, he's, I think, almost weeping here. What then has become of your blessedness? He longs again for the return of intimacy that he once had with the church. Have you ever been through that painful experience of intimacy and freedom that you had in the people of God that now has been lost and you're on like eggshells at church? And you wonder if the conversation you're having is a safe one. Where it will go. So Paul's dealing with here. And so, in my first pastorate, I was right out of seminary, and I had this view of, of pastoral ministry that was like a transaction. I would put in, and they would give out. Just transactional. That they would listen to me just because I was me, and that they would think it was the greatest thing they ever heard and we would all get along smashingly. And I didn't love them. I didn't have much affection for them. 
and a, a, a dear man came to me. He was listening to some of, my, some of my sermons, and he said, I don't think you love them. What if you just told them you loved them? And at first, when he told me that, I was angry because I was getting beat up. And I was thinking, you think it's my fault? You think it's me? You think it's my lack of love? Then God was merciful to me and like, yeah. That's it. You don't love them. And so pastors, elders, deacons, church fathers and mothers, you have to love the people here. You have to make sure with tender affection that you, that they know you care for them. And you're often going to do that with your words, by paying attention to them when they're talking to you, and by being in their homes. By being with them. This is one of the things that the reformers recovered. You've probably read, is it Baxter's reform pastor? Is it Baxter? I get Baxter and Bunyan. And the genius of what he's writing about is just going to be with God's people in their homes. Don't neglect that. Second, Paul suffered for the sheep. I love chapter 6, verse 17. In fact, it might be one of the reasons why I decided to preach this entire book. <laughs> I, I just find this so true. From now on, please, please, just let, don't cause me trouble. Now, the trouble here he means is what we would say drama. It is a privilege for every pastor to be helpful to you in your suffering and in your sin. It really is. I know sometimes you as people are um, reluctant to come to your pastors or elders or others because they're too busy. They've got bigger fish to fry. And we don't think like that often. And we do think like that, but not often. We really do want to be available to you. But what we ask is that we move past junior high. It really is the most discouraging and painful part of church ministry to deal with just foolish interpersonal envy and rivalries and backbitings and gossips and that kind of stuff. It just has no place within the church of Christ. It is awful. You are not to speak evil of your pastors behind their backs, ever. There's never a good reason for it. Now, I'm not saying if there is sin that you shouldn't deal with it. There are proper ways to deal with it. But it begins with you dealing with your own sin first. But here, listen to what Paul says. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. Why? For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, he's not being hyperbolic there at all. He suffered for the gospel. He bled for the sheep. And he often bled by getting between the sheep and those who wanted to steal their freedom. I know your pastors, and I know that they are this kind of men. I know that they are. And I know that their wives are those kind of women who encourage them and stand alongside of them and 
I know, I, know, I know your elders are the same, and your deacons, and there's other godly men and women, so please, don't cause them trouble. Make their service of you a joy and not a groaning, as it says at the end of Hebrews. Fourth, or third and finally, I'm going to skip a few things. They are going to help you. They should be helpful to you in battling your sin. sin. Paul, throughout this letter, that's all that he's doing. The first sin he's battling is their neglect to have the faith to believe the freedom they have in Christ. Your pastor should often be bringing you to Jesus. That's their job. They are like shepherds to lead you to still waters and to the green pastures of the gospel. They are to remind you again and again that you don't have to bear that guilt. You don't have to think about that sin. You're free. And then they are going to have to deal with those places in your life where you are just gratifying your lusts. And they are going to have to say, hard things to you and bring the law of God to bear on those places. This is again what was recovered in the Reformation. And so will you have faith for that? Will you be too proud to hear them have to remind you again of Christ's crucifixion? Because you know it. But we, we know it, but we don't know it. And God has given you these men and these women to remind you of it, to plant you deeply in it, and then to discipline you in your sin. But let me just close again. You were called to freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And that freedom that we have is freedom in our consciousness before God, that we are clean, that we are adopted, that we are beloved, that we are kept, that we are fed. And so rejoice in that freedom. Let's pray. Father, please give us the grace by your Holy Spirit to leave here free, to leave here rejoicing in this freedom, to make much of Christ in whom alone we have it, to not again return and being enslaved in our conscience to this or that law, to this or that guilt laid on by somebody else because of memory of past sin. God, please give us faith to stand firm in this freedom. And then God, give grace to those who are leaders that we might be helpful to your people in standing firm in them. Keep us from enslaving their consciences again. Help us to be helpful in leading them to Christ. And so, God, please, be merciful to us in this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.